It is great to see y'all as always this morning. A little darker outside. Looks like we're going to get some rain if we're not already. Um, but it is good to be with you. We're, we're talking about fear, as Nathan said, uh, because we're, we live in such fearful times right now. In spite of all our affluence and all of our freedoms, all of the comforts that we have as Americans today, all the things we have to be thankful for, I've never known, I don't think the world's ever seen, a generation as anxious as we are, as fearful as we are. We've been talking about what it means to abide by that command that's all through the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And so let me share with you what we've learned so far. We're in 2 Kings 6 today, by the way, if you want to be turning over there. Uh, In the first sermon in the series on Easter Sunday, we talked about how it's not a sin to feel afraid. You basically can't live in this world without sometimes seeing things that concern you. And if, you, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're afraid, God's not mad at you, He's not offended at you. Faith is the answer. Your faith should overcome your fear and enable you to get up and go on and do God's will in spite of your fear. Secondly, we learn that we have to learn how to recognize the lies that fear tells us. When we are afraid, we believe certain things about the world and about ourselves and about other people that aren't necessarily true and that gets us into trouble So we need to learn when those lies are being spoken to us, where those lies come from, the source of our fear and anxiety, so we can listen to the right voices. Uh, Then we talked about how, what the fear of the Lord really looks like. It's It's talked about all through the Bible, but what does it mean to fear God? And we talked about how when we fear God, we can overcome our fears. We don't have to be afraid of anything else. Last week, we talked about the key the the key to worship, how worship reminds us that God is really all we need. When we are afraid, we can praise God in the midst of our storm, and that lifts us out of that because we're reminded of how good He is. So the story we're going to look at today is, today we're going to be talking about spiritual vision, what it means to see the world through God's eyes, and so you're able to see the things you fear the way He looks at them and not be overcome by fear. This story is one of my favorite stories about one of my favorite people in the Bible, a guy named Elisha. There are these two, they're very similar named, Elijah and Elisha. Elisha came right after Elijah. Old Testament prophets that I love because they're everything I wish that I was. And I hope to be someday. I want to grow up to be one of these guys. So this is a story about something that happened to Elisha during a time when Syria and Israel were at war together. So starting with verse 8 of 2 Kings 6. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Wouldn't you love to hear that? And he said, Well, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, 
And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elijah. And and Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. That's the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So there's two people that are the main characters of this story. There's Elisha, and there's his servant. We don't know the servant's name. He's a young man. One of these people is terrified. The other one is calm. The difference between the two is spiritual vision. Whereas the servant can only see what can be seen with human eyes. He can only make decisions based on what he knows about the world, his own human knowledge. Elisha says, I know there's more. I know my God and I know he's got more in store. He's a prophet of the Lord, so he sees things you and I can't see. I'm not saying you and I have to be that way, but I'm saying that spiritual vision makes the difference. Now, I want to show you a little video that's an illustration. It's about a minute long, and it's a baby that we see her getting glasses for the first time. So this is literally the first time this little child has seen clearly. I want you to watch. Lani, Lani, put them on. Look, look at mommy. Look at mommy. Ooh. Look at mommy. <laughs> 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 Can you see? Wow. Lonnie, look at me. <laughs> 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 it looks cute. Dad, Dad, she looks like bubbles off of the t- trailer park boys. Yeah. Lani, Nathan, don't touch. Lani, you need a mom so you can see. Hey, look at Reagan. Can you see? Lani, look at Reagan. Can you see? So yeah, that's just about the most adorable thing you'll see all week, but. I want you to think about that image when you think about how God can change the way you see the world. And we've seen it happen. Some of you have experienced it. You've you've gone from looking at the world one way to a completely different way. That's why Jesus calls it being born again. You're given new eyes in a sense, spiritual eyes. I'm just going to give you three hypothetical examples. I'm I'm not describing any specific person. But for instance, maybe there's a woman who... Everywhere she looks, all she sees are toxic people all around her, her family, her friends, her coworkers. They're all, they're all either evil and out to get her or they're just dumb as a bag of rocks. They're just awful people. And then one day she realizes, the Holy Spirit convicts her and she realizes, you know, I'm the common denominator between all of these awful people. So maybe it's not that they're awful. Maybe the problem is me. And she prays to God and she repents and her heart is humbled and she begins to look on these people with grace 
and to see them through eyes of love, and it changes her world. Or imagine a man who grows up in church and he's raised to believe if you're a good Christian, you go to church every time the doors are open, and so he does. But he hates it. He doesn't tell anyone that. He would never tell anyone that, but he finds church boring. He falls asleep during the sermon. He thinks the songs are ridiculous. It's just the longest hour of his week every week. But one day, he gets revival in his heart. He just calls upon the Holy Spirit and says, Lord, I need to fall in love with you again. And the Lord answers, and he begins to fall deeply in love with Jesus. And now Sundays are his favorite day of the week. He loves to sing those songs, and he can't wait for the Word to be preached. In fact, he goes out and he reads the Word for himself, and he can't wait to share what he's learned and invite others to come with him. His vision has changed. Or imagine a young teenage girl, and she's just in the process of of making just terrible decision after terrible decision. And even though in her mind she knows her parents love her, she can't help feeling they don't understand. And her teachers are probably trying their best, but she doesn't really relate to them either. And and so she's just out there on her own, uh, hurting herself and hurting others. And then one day a friend comes and shares the gospel with her, and she is truly born again. And while she feels a sense of shame for all the bad things she did and bad decisions she made and problems she caused the people she loves, she feels even greater a sense of gratitude that God would accept her as she is and and give her a new life. And that, again, is spiritual vision. Some of you could give testimony of how God has done that for you. So a spiritual vision where it comes into fear, where it applies to our fears is this. Here's the rest of the sermon for you. Every time we're afraid, Through spiritual vision, we know one of three things is true. Every single time we fear, every time we face a crisis, we know one of three things is true. Number one, sometimes we realize our fears were a setup for a miracle. That God allowed this crisis to come so that He could show the world how great He is. That's certainly the case in the story we read today. Elisha is in this city of Dothan, and He's calm. His servant is not. I want you to think about this, by the way. Imagine you're that servant. Years to come, when you're, when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 80, do you think you'll ever get tired of telling that story? Somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, you know, let me tell you what happened to me this week. And you're like, that's pretty good. But let me tell you about that time. When I was in Dothan with Elisha, and I woke up first thing in the morning, the sun hadn't even risen yet, and I walked outside, and all I saw was torches all around the city because the Syrians had invaded and they were coming after us. And I was definitely sure I was dying within five minutes. And all of a sudden I looked and everything had changed. I saw an angelic army that was four times the size of the enemy and I knew we were going to be okay. See, God does these kinds of things. You read these stories in the Bible. You see uh, an army of, of Egyptians bearing down on the people of God who have no arms at all, and they're pressed between the invading army, the advancing army, and the Red Sea. And God says, that's no problem, and parts the sea. You see those moments when, when it hasn't rained in seven years, and Elijah looks up and says, oh, I see a little cloud about the size of my hand up there, and within a few minutes, it's flooding rain. You see, a little boy dies, and Elisha breathes life into him and raises him from the dead. God does these things in Scripture. And in all those stories, there are two necessary ingredients. There are two necessary ingredients to any miracle. Number one is God, of course. Number two is a crisis. You can't have a miracle without those two things. 
There are literally no stories in the Bible of miracles of convenience. There's never a time when Elijah walks outside and says, it's a little chilly out here, Lord. You want to warm it up a bit? And God causes the clouds to part and the sun to bear down. And all of a sudden, it's 80 degrees. That doesn't happen. Instead, God does his miracles when people are struggling, when people are, are, are hurting, when people are terrified. And some of you could tell your story. I don't know every story in this room, but I know enough of you to know that you've got stories. Some of you could say, yep, the, the doctor said there was no hope. And then the next time we went in, he said, I don't understand. This x-ray looks completely different. This blood test doesn't show any sign of the illness. And I knew it was God. Or I was, I was facing that, that bill. They were going to take away my house. They were going to take away everything. And then all of a sudden, the exact amount of money I need, it showed up. A friend came and handed it to me or somebody who owed me money showed up and paid me back or just whatever reason, all of a sudden the money was there. Or, or I had this loved one that was just killing themselves, just doing terrible things and I prayed and prayed and nothing changed. And then all of a sudden, somebody else I never even met came up to them and, and spoke a word of rebuke and encouragement and instruction and their life was turned around and God worked a miracle in their life. And See, you're going to face crises. That's the truth. This, this is the, one of those verses that you probably won't put on a coffee mug or a, a bumper sticker or in calligraphy on your wall, but the first half of John 16, is Jesus saying, in this life, you will have tribulation. That's a guarantee. No matter who you are, how much faith you have, how good you are, you're going to have problems. And sometimes those problems are God setting up an amazing miracle that you'll talk about the rest of your life. There's a second thing through spiritual vision we see. Sometimes our fears actually come true, but God still comes through. And no, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. See, this is the part that the televangelists won't tell you. Sometimes God doesn't work a miracle no matter how hard you pray, no matter how strong your faith is. See, this story that we read today took place in Dothan in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's actually the second story in the Bible set in Dothan. This, the first one is found in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis 37, God, I'm sorry, God, Jacob sends out his 17-year-old son, Joseph, the, the apple of his eye, the pride of his life, his 17-year-old son, Joseph. He says, your 10 older brothers have been grazing their flocks long enough. It's time for them to come in. Will you go find them? Joseph walks and walks until he finds his brothers in Dothan. They see him coming. And they say, here he comes, daddy's boy, the golden child. We heard him bragging about how he's gonna, he's, we're going to bow down before him someday. Well, I'll tell you what, let's get rid of him right now. They throw Ju Joseph into the bottom of a well. Now, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're 17 years old. And let's face it, when I was 17, I thought the world revolved around me too. But you're 17 years old. And you've just realized that your brothers hate your guts. How do you know this? Because you're hip deep in mud and you can hear them talking about the various ways they can kill you. What's the best way to dispose of him? This has got to be a shattering moment. I am sure, although the Bible doesn't tell us so, that Joseph prayed as hard as he had ever prayed in his life. Lord, please rescue me. Lord, deliver me. Change their minds. Let them lift me out of this pit and take me home to my father. But that's not what happened. Joseph prayed, 
And his prayer was answered by something that in his mind at that time, I'm sure was even worse than death. They said, let's make money off this kid. They sold him into slavery. He was carried to Egypt, where as far as he knew, he would never see his homeland or his family ever again. Sometimes, sometimes God doesn't give us the miracle we ask for. In fact, often that is the case. God does do miracles, but it's strategic moments in history. They're rare. That's why they're called miracles, okay? We'd call them something else if they happened all the time. Most of the time, God chooses to work behind the scenes through the events of human life in a sinful world quietly in ways we're not aware of, often until it's already over. And then we look back on it. And that's what happened to Joseph. So I know this is a great story and I, I, I can't tell the whole thing like I want to, but if you want to go back and read it, start with chapter 37 of Genesis and read to the end of the book. But let me just sum it up for you. Joseph ends up going from being a slave to being the prime minister of Egypt. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. And because he's prime minister of Egypt and he has the wisdom of God, he is able to rescue the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from starvation through his good management of their crops, including his own family, including his father and his brothers, with whom he is able to reconcile after 20 years apart. That's a great story. And the, the capper, the kicker to it all is Genesis 50-20 in the top five for me of verses in the Old Testament where the, the brothers say to Joseph after Jacob dies, hey, you're not going to kill us now, are you? Now that dad's dead, you're not going to get your revenge on us for what we did to you all those years ago? And he's offended. He's like, hey, I forgave you long ago. He says in, in, in Genesis 50-20, he says, you intended it for evil against me, but God meant it for good that he might save all these lives. You see what he's saying? God didn't answer my prayer for a miracle. He let you do this horrible thing to me because he saw how he could use that to accomplish something even greater than the miracle I was praying for. If you guys would have changed your mind and lifted me out of that pit and taken me home and we just had a big laugh, we all would have starved to death 20 years later. I wouldn't have had this opportunity to save all these lives through the power of God. So God knew what he was doing all along. That many, many times that's going to be the case where we are worried and afraid and we're praying for a miracle and it's not happening. We're able to say, Lord, even if what I'm asking for doesn't happen, even if it's not in your will to, to come through in, in a spectacular way right now, I know you're going to accomplish something even greater. Here's, here's a quote from Tim Keller that I love that applies to this. God answers every prayer we pray the way we would if we knew what He knows. Every time we can say, Lord, I'm not getting the thing I'm asking for, so you must have a better plan. I choose you. That enables us to overcome fear. Now, here's the third possibility, and this one is less comforting than the first two. I'll just warn you. This is where... We're going to have to get uncomfortable, all right? Sometimes we learn we're afraid of the wrong things. Sometimes we learn this is nothing to fear. Have you ever uh, seen Christians freak out over things and then it turn out to be nothing? I think about uh, Y2K, for instance. Some of us were alive in the late 90s and terrified that at the, at the turn of midnight on 
January 31st or December 31st, 1999, that everything was going to go bonkers and we were going to, the world economy was going to collapse. It didn't happen. I'll go further back than that. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Christian parents were insane back then because they thought that, that uh, heavy metal music was, was, was going to turn us all into Satan worshipers. No, it didn't happen. We, we freak out over things that aren't worth fearing. Think about Elisha. Elisha looks out and he sees the enemy and he's not afraid. What does Elisha do to those people? This is an interesting thing because obviously when he strikes them blind, they, they actually also get a little state of mental confusion too because he ends up taking them on a foot journey of 12 miles. I don't know about you, but I'm not walking 12 miles uh, without knowing where I'm going. 12 miles they walk from the little town of Dothan to the capital city of Samaria. And as soon as they walk through the gates and the gates close behind them, their eyes are opened and they look around and they're surrounded by the Israelite army. Swords drawn, spears in hand, arrows knocked, ready to kill them all. And the king of Israel at the time is this idolatrous little fool named named Joram and he's bouncing up and down on the balls of his feet. Can I kill him? Can I kill him? No, you moron, you're not going to kill them. That's not why I brought them to you. Would you kill prisoners of war? They're not out to get you, they're out to get me. Elisha says, I could destroy them, but I want to show them grace. Feed them, send them back to their master. Do you see what happens here? Because Elisha chose not to be afraid of those men, but to see them as an opportunity. What happens is, That little act of grace brings about peace between Israel and Syria. If he would have done the easy thing, the fearful thing, if he would have said, kill them all, then they can't get me, king of Syria would have heard of it and he said, okay, I'm sending an army twice as big next time. But because Elisha wasn't afraid, because he showed grace, because he saw opportunity instead of fear, there was peace between these two countries and thousands of lives were saved. Again, we fear the wrong thing all the time. You've experienced it. You've, you've had moments where perhaps uh, you were dating someone and, oh, Lord, please don't let her break up with me. And she did anyway. And then years pass and you look back and you think, you know, that wasn't the right relationship for me after all. You lose your job and, oh my gosh, Lord, I, what am I going to do? My job is everything to me. And then you take the first job offer you get and it's in a field you've not even trained for. And then a couple of months pass and you realize, I actually enjoy this more than what I was doing. Sometimes we fear the wrong thing, but let me give you an example that is going to be harder for you to uh, wrap your mind around, all right? This is is kind of the meat of what I want to talk to you about. So some of you are aware there's a movie out right now called Jesus Revolution. It's one of the biggest movies of the year, kind of a surprise hit. Most of the time, faith-based movies don't make a lot of money. This one is really doing well. It's based on a true story about something that happened in the late 1960s in Southern California when uh, unexpectedly, unexplainably, thousands of hippies turned to Christ through the ministry of Calvary Chapel and some of the churches there in Southern California. Now, this was a big deal at the time. It made the cover of of Time magazine back when that was pretty much the standard for it's a big deal. Not only that, it's called the Jesus People Movement. To this day, it is known as the last great awakening in American history. We hope not the last of all time, but it's the last one we're aware of. The last time there's been a sudden and unexplainable 
transformation of a certain people group of thousands of people coming to Christ at one time. The world changed. Now, how did it happen? I want to, I want to share this with you because over the years since, in the 60 years since all that happened, the, the media has sort of romanticized the, the whole hippie movement and the counterculture in the 60s so that now we look at it and we think, oh, well, you know, they had some pretty good music and they smoked weed and they dressed funny and, yeah, isn't that adorable? But we forget what a scary thing that was for a lot of people in America. What, what a sense of fear that red-blooded patriotic Americans had about what was going on over there on the West Coast and was spreading throughout the country. Keep in mind, these were the sons and daughters of the greatest generation. You know, these were the sons and daughters of the people who had survived the Great Depression, had won World War II, had made the United States a superpower. These were people who believed in the sanctity of the family, but their kids were listening to a message that said, don't forget that, it's sexual expression, freedom. It's free love. It's whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. This was a, a generation, the greatest generation, that believed so passionately in patriotism and sacrificing for your country. And the hippies came along carrying the flag of the enemy in the Vietnam War, the, the North Vietnamese army flag uh, and, and portraits of Mao Zedong and, and essentially rooting for our army to lose. The greatest generation believed in hard work and, and responsibility. And the hippies came along and said, forget that, drop out of all that. And to make it scarier even than that, middle American human uh, moms and dads, they all knew somebody. They all knew somebody who had lost a son or a daughter who had just, in the middle of the night, had just disappeared, had gone out to Haight-Ashbury or to Southern California and had joined this movement. It was, it was scary for a lot of people. And yet there were these churches like Calvary Chapel that had the spiritual vision to say, these aren't our enemies. These are lost children. These are people who need to come home. They're, they're looking for something that they're not ever going to find in drugs and sex and rock and roll. But they will find it in Jesus. And the only place they're going to see Jesus is in us. So let's be Jesus to them. Let's show them grace. Instead of fear, instead of fearing the wrong thing, they saw opportunity. They saw grace. Now, here's the uncomfortable part. Who are the hippies today? I don't mean the 60 and 70-year-old people who used to have long hair and smoke weed. I'm not talking about that. I mean, who are the people in our world today who church-going folks like us tend to fear? Who are the people who, when we watch the news... And we see those people, we walk away shaking our heads and say, man, if those people get their way, if those people take over, this isn't going to be a fit place to live anymore. Who are the people who people like you and me fear? People who push particular social agendas that we disagree with? People who uh, believe in other faiths and come over from other countries? People who don't really respect our freedom of religion? I mean, you and I could probably name certain groups that Christians tend to fear. It's hard to imagine groups of people like that in mass turning to faith in Christ, but it happened 60 years ago. And that was no less miraculous than it would be today. And let's keep in mind, 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus stood in front of people far more religious and moral than you and me. And he said to them, don't you understand the prostitutes and the tax collectors are getting into the kingdom and you're not? Because you see them as an enemy, because you see them as a force to be crushed, as an enemy to be destroyed, instead of the sons and the daughters of God who need to come home? Would he say the same to you and me? Now listen, I'm not saying we can't disagree. I'm not saying, in fact, sometimes we must speak the truth in love, even when it hurts. Jesus didn't win prostitutes and tax collectors by endorsing their lifestyles, but instead of being afraid about what happens if those people take over, we should be afraid that those people will live their whole lives and never hear the gospel presented in a compelling way even once. That ought to make us weep. We ought to, instead of being afraid of the wrong thing, which is, well, what if they move into our town and change everything? Our fear should be, what if... Those people never, ever encounter any Christians who actually treat them the way Jesus treated us, who actually live out a Christ-like example before them. That takes spiritual vision because we don't think that way naturally. We like to think in terms of white hats and black hats, good guys and bad guys. And of course, we're the ones with the white hats on. So how do we get to the place where we see people through the eyes of God? First, we got to ask for it. You get it by asking for it. Elisha prayed for his friend. He said, open his eyes, and God did. And I think he'll do the same for us if we just say, Lord, I want to make sure I see the world you see it, the way you see it. I admit that I am self-centered at heart, and most of the time I can't even see the ways that I am. So change the way that I see. I'm done living a life ruled by fear. I want to see the world like you do. But then secondly, we've got to study the Bible in community. You notice in that video, the little girl takes the glasses off. And that's what we end up doing sometimes. We, we go through these periods of time where we are, we are all in on God's agenda and we're seeing people and ourselves through the eyes of God and we're walking in humility and in passion and we're loving others. And then all of a sudden we say, okay, enough of that. I'm going to go back to my old self-centered ways. We take those gospel goggles off and what we need is to study God's Word together. See, the Bible, when we read the Bible, we're actually reading God's thoughts. We're learning the way He thinks, the way He sees the world. And yes, I want you to read the Bible for yourself, absolutely. But if that's all you ever do, the problem is we're all, we're all full of blind spots that we're not aware of. I guess that's the definition of a blind spot, right? Where you, you're reading the Bible and there's things in the text that you're not seeing because you don't want to because we all tend to read and and focus on the parts that tell us what we want to hear. But when we come to life group together, when we sit in a room together and we study God's word together and someone teaches and we hear other people raise their hand and say, hey, what do you think about this? And here's something I've discovered and here's something I'm thinking about. And then we hear perspectives that we're not, we hadn't heard before. And that's how we continue to grow in Christ continue to gain that spiritual vision. Let me just sum it up with this. Let me just say this. Jesus had a couple of things in common with Elisha. Like Elisha, he was pursued by a squad of soldiers one night. Like Elisha, he could have destroyed them all. Remember what he said to Peter when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. I can call down 12 legions of angels just like that. But he didn't. Elisha gave his enemies a feast. 
Jesus gave them so much more. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After they had nailed him to a cross, Jesus died for the men who came to arrest him, just like he died for you, just like he died for me, to rescue us. That's the gospel. When you see the world through those gospel goggles, when, when everything is, is shaped by your understanding of the gospel, you know there's no reason for me ever to feel superior to anybody else. Ever. Because I'm so sinful, the Son of God had to come die for me. But there's no reason ever for me to feel ashamed or inferior because I'm worth so much that the Son of God came and died for me. That's the gospel. That's the spiritual vision it takes to live without fear. When you live that way, you see miracles happen, but you also see God working when there's no miracles to be seen. You have, you have fewer and fewer people you consider an enemy and more and more people you consider an opportunity to show the love of God. You have fewer and fewer things you're afraid of and more and more things you just want to praise God for. So will you do that? As I lead us in prayer right now, will you say, Lord, open my eyes.